We're going to continue in our study of Romans 9. And the goal is to get to the end of the chapter this morning. And what I want to do as we look at this, beloved, is I want to observe what unconditional election is. And we've been observing this for weeks now as we've been in Romans 9. And I want us to leave here with application of divine election to our own lives. And you may ask, how do do we apply divine election to our lives? Well, there's many ways that I want to make sure that we understand and that we embrace for many reasons. One is with the hope that we grow down in humility. Right? Oftentimes, the more one knows, the more elevated in pride we are prone to. Amen? Because we're only human. That we will have friends that are Christians who, who they reject divine election. Though it is clearly taught in the Bible, they reject it, probably because they don't fully understand it. But then again, it's not hard to understand. It's just hard to accept. Okay, how do we, here's another point of application, how do we help them? Number one, by coming to them in humility. Amen? Not in pride. And and I'm not saying that, and I'm not prefacing that because this congregation battles with that kind of pride. That is not. It's just the opposite, as a matter of fact. But may we always be reminded of these things. Amen? Okay. So let's continue this study this morning. We're going to... We left off in verse 24, but we need to go back to verse 18, kind of capture the thought, and we'll continue on through here and read to the end. Verse 18. So then, he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Well, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, 
I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is God's word for God's people. Now, we have spent the last few weeks looking at the difficult questions Paul raises with regard to divine election and divine reprobation. Now, if you haven't been here, this may come as a shock to you as we look at this portion of Scripture and conclude with chapter 9, but I'd encourage you to go to the website and catch up. Go back to chapter 8 and listen all the way through, and you can catch up, and it will all make more sense, perhaps. But this, this is where God works belief into the hearts of his elect and passes over others in the process. That's reality. That's what the scripture teaches. That is, that out of all of humanity, all of whom, by the way, are equally dead in their trespasses and sins, and therefore totally incapable of making themselves alive in Christ in order to believe and trust themselves to Christ, he, God, according to his elect, determined will, predetermined will, will cause some to believe and trust by faith, which is a gift. And in order to accomplish that divine work, will leave many to themselves hardened in unbelief. That's what we've looked at. That's a fact. You as saved people are destined for glory. Okay? The destiny of predestination means just that. Predestination means that he predetermined your destiny. That is glory. Ephesians 1 tells us that by believing according to faith, which is a gift, he has sealed you for the day of glory. In other words, you can't lose salvation. Once you're truly saved, you're always saved. If anyone walks away from the faith and denies Christ, they were never saved in the first place. They only had a man-made faith. His divine work accomplishes all that he intended to accomplish. And that is glory. And it's solely because of his mercy. Divine sovereignty, unconditional election is solely because of mercy. We did nothing to earn this. And according to the Bible, the choice of whom he has determined to save is entirely up to him. It's entirely up to him. It's not because of anything good in me. It's not because of anything good or bad in you. But only because of his good reasons are we saved. For his good purposes. Therefore, it is not within the creature's jurisdiction to call into question the justice of the creator. That's why Paul raises the questions. What shall we say then? Well, you will say to me this then. When God hardens whom he hardens, then you'll raise this question. And on and on and on the argument goes. Paul has labored to explain that it is enough to know that the judge of all the earth will do what? Right. He will do right. This we know, this we must trust. And had he not chosen people for himself, according to his predetermined sovereign will, nobody would be saved. Unless he applied that grace to the believer, we couldn't be saved. So the fact of the matter is, he has predestined some for glory by way of the exclusion of others. I mean, that's part of the process. Some are simply 
excluded. He's never been under obligation to provide salvation for any sinner whatsoever. And see, that's the crux of the matter. Sometimes we think that he's obligated to save everybody, that he's obligated to treat everybody equally, but he's not. Okay, let, let's, let's look, look back at verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on who, beloved? On God. Okay, verse 16, the it there of verse 16 is salvation. Salvation depends not on human will, but all according to the divine sovereign purpose and power of God. Okay? But I willfully came to him. Yes, you did. But not until he changed your will to do so. And he's sovereign. Okay? Sovereignty simply means to rule and reign with absolute authority. There's no such thing as partial sovereignty. There's no such thing as part-time sovereignty. And there's certainly no such thing as shared sovereignty. God's sovereignty is in no way subject to that which man will or will not do. Many people think that um, foreknowledge means that God looks down the, the annals of time and says, oh, he's going to choose me and he's going to reject me, so therefore I'll reject him and choose him. Wrong. That's not what foreknow means. Foreknow means to beset love upon one. He foresaw you by besetting his elective salvific love upon you long, long ago. That's why you believe today. It's because of that. That's grace. That's mercy. That is to say that God's sovereignty is not subject to man's decision. It's not subject to man's autonomy. That is to say man's self-governing rule of himself. God changes the will according to his mercy. Okay, so some observations. Some observations of divine election. What have we learned in studying God's unconditional election thus far? Well, number one is that God purposefully chose the most unlikely objects to be recipients of his grace. <clears throat> Look in the mirror. <clears throat> in order that, <clears throat> secondly, number two, that we would in no way be able to boast in our salvation whatsoever. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said this in chapter 1, in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, what? He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God, what? Chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Boasting's excluded. Paul says, each one of you Corinthians, each one of you San Diegans, each one of you who attend Pacific Hope Church, this knowledge that God has chosen you when you were totally undeserving of it should humble you to the core. We never would have loved Jesus had Jesus not loved us first. We never would have chosen Jesus lest not he chose us first. Right? Because, beloved, we are categorically like every other sinner, and that is totally incapable of coming to him on our own, totally incapable of seeking him on our own. 
Let's just go back, just go back to Romans 3 just for a second, which we studied months ago. Verse 9, what then? Another one of Paul's rhetorical questions. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, how many are righteous? None. No one understands. How many seek after God? No one seeks after God. No one. God's sovereign decree, you know, we'll say, well, God hardens people. Look, that is a mystery. It's true. Okay, and we don't, do we know who he hardens today? No, we'll never know for sure until the end, until final judgment. Because he may have predetermined to act upon some just as he did like the thief on the cross. The last moment. You just don't know. So uh, divine reprobation will not be made fully manifest to us until final judgment. Because, beloved, we don't know the crevices and, and, and the underlying beliefs of people's hearts. We can't see the heart. We can't read the heart. But God does, boy, transparently so. We do know that in the end, more will be, there'll be more who aren't in heaven than there are are in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 7, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are Few. He went on to say in Matthew 7, On the last day, on the day of judgment, many will cry out, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name and that in your name? And he will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. You claim to know me, but I never knew you. That's hard stuff. True, nonetheless. The first thing that the doctrine of election should do to us is fill our hearts with love, is fill our hearts with humility, and our mouths with praise and thanksgiving. That's the first thing that it ought to do. Paul goes on to clarify that God's mercy here, God's mercy, his salvific mercy, is revealed by patiently enduring with the sin of the reprobate in order to show his glory by way of his mercy to you, his elect. Verse 22, notice. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for what? Destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Question, does anyone have a problem with God wanting to demonstrate his power? We would all say no. Of course not. What if he wants to demonstrate it by way of displaying his wrath? Do we have a problem with that? Perhaps. (laughs) That's our problem. Wrath belongs to God no less than mercy, grace, and goodness belong to God. No matter the situation, we can never find fault for God showing his wrath in any way he sees fit. He's creator. This is what Paul is emphasizing here. I'm trying to expound this truth. Okay, what if God wants to show his power by pouring out on some sinners wrath? Okay, here's a group of sinners. He wants to pour out his wrath 
in order to show mercy to this group of sinners. Is that okay? It is okay because he's God. The problem is we often have a problem with it. If anyone wants to call God's purposes and power into question, overruled. Overruled. God rules over his earth. He rules over creation, both with his wrath and his mercy on display as he sees fit. Even as a Christian. You know, I fear God. Yes, in awe. Yes, in reverence. But I also fear him. Does God have the right as a Christian to judge me? Okay, meaning by way of discipline. I'm not talking about losing my justification, my no condemnation category because of Christ. None of that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God if he chose to do so. Let's say I want to I walk the line of compromise. And I'm walking the line of compromise and he comes and he crushes me with discipline. Does he have the right to do that? Of course he does. And if I have a problem with it, it's my problem. Because he chastens those he loves. He chastens those he loves. To some, he has displayed mercy and salvation. We could never earn that mercy. Nothing we can do to gain his favor. That's why it's called mercy. That's why it's called grace. So against the backdrop of sin, against the backdrop of rebellion and rejection and hardness of the heart, those who have embraced, have been embraced by God in his mercy embrace him and his mercy in return. Right? That's why we're here. We're recipients of mercy. And then we begin to see more clearly than ever, beloved, our own sin. We begin to see more clearly than ever the price that was really paid to purchase us and bring us out of our sin condition. Amen? We're citizens of heaven now. Recipients of grace now. Members of the household of faith now. Already in the category that states there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus now. No condemnation. Now and forevermore because of God's mercy, because of God's grace in and through his son Jesus Christ in your place. Because he determined to save you. You didn't earn it. Now, in verse 24, we can't forget the original context and who Paul's writing and why he's writing and all this type of thing. We go back to the origin of of the letter, and that is that this letter was written to both Jews and Gentiles that made up the church at Rome. And there must certainly have been, within that body of believers, believing Jews who said, you know, we were chosen before you were. Right? We were chosen before you were. We're not quite sure how or why God chose you, but we have the pride of place, baby. Right? Very human type of response. So Paul concludes this section of Romans with this. God has called not only from the Jews, but also the Gentiles, and he determined to do that also in eternity past. Yes, you had all the promises. Yes, you had all the religion. Yes, you had all the traditions. But I, not unlike you, chose them, many of them, not all of them in eternity past. And you know what? The choosing of you was not all of you inclusive because of your ethnicity, because not all Israel is of true Israel. 
right? He's made that clear. Notice verse 25. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the place, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Okay, now here, beloved, he's citing Hosea, the prophet Hosea. Remember, he was ordered to marry a harlot. Hosea was ordered by God to marry a prostitute, an unfaithful wife. And then the children that were produced from that union received God's judgment. Well, we say, well, that's not fair. Right? That's what we say typically. That's not fair. Okay, but let's look at this a minute. Let's look at Hosea 1, which was uh, Ryan read from this morning. In, in verse 6, okay, Gomer, this woman who Hosea married, she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name Lo Ruhamah, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Okay, notice verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, lo am I, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So here, in order to display the riches of his mercy, he says this. You who are my people by ancestry, by bloodline, you're not my people. Is that hard? Sure, that's hard. Do we understand this completely? No. But I understand God does what he wills. So Paul uses this now to explain in these following chapters, as we will see, Paul uses this to show us that Gentiles, according to the gracious mercy of God, are the wild olive branch grafted into the root of the tree. You get it? That's what you are today. That's what we are. Displaying the riches of God's mercy and grace. That's all it is, is mercy and grace, and that's everything if you're going to be saved. They did nothing. Were Gentiles seeking God? No. They could care less about the law. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. You and I, beloved, bring nothing to the table. Do we realize this? I mean, we say yes, but when it comes to stuff like this, we're like, hold on a minute here. That's what we do. Until we come to embrace this, which is also according to God's grace, and opening our eyes to see that he's the boss. Really the boss. Creator. He talks about these people. They're referred to as his people, as his beloved. To be his beloved is to experience the affection that comes from God, having nothing to do with our earning his merit. That's salvation. He did nothing to prompt him to include you into his family. Nothing. We really cannot boast. Do I sound like a broken record over these weeks? I want to. I do. We play nothing in this. This should drive us down. He calls us sons of God. And our sonship 
comes through the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That's the seed of Abraham that was promised. The true seed is Jesus. The true seed is the Christ. The true Israel is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the true seed. We're either in him or not. And then he goes on, notice, he cites from Isaiah. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Destroyed. Devastated. Judged. You see, beloved, all believers are a gift of the Father to the Son. All those in Christ are a gift of the Father to the Son, the spiritual seed of Abraham. So Paul provides here an exposition of some very crucial Old Testament, Old Testament texts. We interpret Scripture with? Scripture. That's how we interpret Scripture. And he knows that people will cry not fair. Okay, but now as we think of this, was God obligated to choose Abraham? Was he obligated out of all the nations of the world to choose Israel? No, absolutely not. Was that fair? Again, if it was fair, he wouldn't even call them. If God were truly fair and only fair in his justice, none of us would be saved. That's what fairness is in justice. That's punishment. Israel was chosen to be led by his spirit, to be ruled by his word, so as to be a light to the Gentiles, to be a light to the nations. Was God obligated to choose the Amorites, the Hittites, the Babylonians, that great mighty power of its day? Absolutely not. He wasn't obligated to do anything for anyone. But all the way back to Israel's forefather, God said that through you, the what? The nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you and through that seed and through that seed again, the ultimate fulfillment is Christ. There's an ethnic seed, yes. There's a seed of faith, yes. But the true seed for which your faith is placed is the unique seed, Christ. It's Jesus. So all that to say, salvation is not about us. It's not ultimately about us. Salvation is ultimately about God's glory. We, you, are a means to his end. The end is his glory. God saving you is a means to that end. This is what we want to learn. This is what we want to know. See, many of the Jewish believers, beloved, thought that they had a different status over and above Gentile believers. We see this in Galatians. We see this in the New Testament where Paul addresses these things only because of their association. Their association. Okay, look at verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. They didn't pursue this. God gave it to them. But that Israel, who pursued the law, a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Okay, Jesus is God's cornerstone of the kingdom. Amen? They stumbled over him. 
Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Israel tripped over grace and Israel tripped over God's mercy. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Will there be anyone in hell who says, I wanted to believe in Jesus. I wanted to apply faith to my belief, but it was not allowed for me to do so. Will there be anyone who in hell who says that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Everyone in hell will want to be there, and that is away from the glory and the presence of God. He'll only be there in hell in his judgment. So Paul is repeating the argument he introduced in the first part of the chapter. Okay, unbelieving Israel has not found a right standing with God, but believing Gentiles have. So why? Why is it? Okay, first and foremost, okay, now follow me through with this. First and foremost, you have to look at God's sovereignty as all of chapter 9 defines. Ultimately, it's because of the sovereignty of God. God has a purpose, even in the rejection of Jesus by Israel. He has a purpose. And that purpose was what? According to scripture, to reveal his mercy. To reveal mercy. And then in verse 6 of chapter 9, remember, not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. But this is what the Jews boasted in, their association to this nation. That was their boasting. Verses 30 and 32 remind us that God's sovereignty, okay, don't miss this. God's sovereignty does not contradict human responsibility. All right? Because here's what people do when they come to this. People will say, well, now he's talking about human responsibility, so it's all about human responsibility and what man is going to do. That what determines, that's what determines God's sovereignty. Wrong. What man does in the end is a result of God's sovereignty in the beginning. But yet man is never forced to do anything he doesn't want to do. He does exactly what he wants to do in his fallen condition. All right? So Paul is not saying this. He's not saying, look, some of you might decide, decide to believe Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 29, the fact that God is absolutely sovereign. Right? And then some of you might decide to believe Romans 9, verse 30, all the way through chapter 10 with regard to human responsibility. Okay? And you can believe either way that either God is totally sovereign or man is sovereignly responsible, okay? And then you can make a dividing line. Go ahead and choose which side you want. Build a theological structure around what you decide. Is he saying that? No. But that's what men have done. Well, you're Calvinistic. Well, you're Armenian. That's right, I'm an Armenian, and you're a Calvinist. Notice, Paul doesn't even pause for a moment to draw a distinction. None whatsoever. Is sovereign election biblical? Yes. Is human responsibility biblical? Yes. Look at those as two pillars. And if you, try, you ever try to tie, take two sticks, firm sticks, and try to tie them together. Can you tie them together? No, of course not. Try to take two pillars in time together. Leave them be. 
Leave sovereign election where it is and leave human responsibility where it is. And when you come across it, agree with it, praise God for it, and move on. And then you can go call sinners to repent and believe. Without any contradiction whatsoever. Both are entirely <clears throat> true. God's grace is whose choice? His choice. God's grace is God's choice. He's sovereign. Nevertheless, man is responsible. The point is the Gentiles weren't seeking God. God was seeking them. Were they found? They were found. They were found. He pursued them. So, listen to this young theologian. Quote, God's electing intervention results in obtaining the righteousness of faith, that is, the Gentiles, while God's lack of intervention caused the Jews to pursue the law by works instead of faith, which in turn led to their rejection of Christ as the righteousness of God and the culmination of the law. Jesus is the culmination of the law. God didn't intervene on them, enabling them to believe. Therefore, it manifests itself like this. They pursued righteousness by works. God did pursue the Gentiles. He intervened in their lives, seeking them. And if he seeks you, he's going to find you. And he grants them grace to believe by faith. Okay, we we get this? Israel, on the human side of it now, we move from the sovereign side and what God does and doesn't do, and how it manifests itself, Israel manifested this reality and turned God's specific calling of them into rank, into class, into status, rather than blessing. We get it? That's how it manifested itself. They misunderstood the foundation of this call being grace. Instead, they saw it as some highfalutin status like this. Lifting their chin up at everyone else. Looking down their nose at everyone else. You see? That's how it manifested itself. They would take God's law and twist God's law into works righteousness rather than seeing through the law to God the lawmaker and thus seeing their necessity to be saved by grace alone. You see? The law is there to drive us to Christ. You can't uphold the law. That's what they tried to do. And they, they, they had this outward appearance about them. It was all status. So let's look at some of the, the applications of divine election. There are some observations. Let's look at some applications. Now, in understanding the entire covenant structure, Israel, the covenant people, the old covenant people of God, naturally misunderstood what it meant to be chosen. What it meant to be chosen. Their time and their effort were spent talking about history, talking about tradition, particular doctrines, which they usually misconstrued and perverted, right? This is what they did. They became proud, argumentative, unteachable people. Most notably evident when they were confronted by God incarnate himself. Right? 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said this to the leaders of that mob, to the leaders of that mentality. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Here's the human side of this sovereign reality. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves are. Ow! They spent all all their time talking about the word of God, not knowing the God of the word. Is that possible? Yeah, historically that's possible. For instance, one doctrine that they twisted so out of joint was the doctrine of the Sabbath. They completely missed the Lord of the Sabbath in the process. Okay, remember, the Pharisees were saying to him in Mark 2, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And the disciples were plucking grain to eat. So Jesus gives them Uh, an example and an illustration from David in the Old Testament. And he goes on in verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The knowledge that God had chosen them, as undeserving as they were, only made them proud, self-righteous, and arrogant rather than motivated out of thanksgiving and awe and humility, which would motivate into true holiness, true service. It was all a facade. It was a show. It was religion, friends. Amen? It was religion. Some Christians today can get so caught up and obsessed with one or two particular doctrines that they completely must understand what their having been chosen actually means. People don't change. At the core, we're all the same. Many Christians spend more time talking about and disputing about things pertaining to God, Christian ritual, and everything else that goes along with it, with very little time, if any, talking about the Redeemer himself and what he's done and what he's doing. We have to be careful. Some Christians expend more energy talking about Christian liberty than they do Christian living. You know, I personally know a number of brothers and sisters in this town who adhere to a less than probably sound doctrine. They don't understand the doctrines of grace. They might not want to understand the doctrines of grace. Um, divine sovereign election. They read it in the Bible. They just simply reject it. But let me tell you something about some of these Christians that I know who are in that camp. Their Christian lives absolutely outshine others I know who really understand the deep things of God. (sighs) Period. End of story. They radiate with humble, spirit-led obedience, whereas the pagan people around them inquire, what's so different about you? It's Jesus. That's who. It's Jesus. Imagine, okay, 
Here's Joe Christian. Joe Christian lives his life. On Sunday, he goes and he rattles off all kinds of doctrine. He knows all kinds of stuff. He loves to go to conferences and learn all this stuff. But Monday through Saturday, he's amongst these people, and these people see him, and they hear him, and they talk to him, and they listen, and they walk, and they approach him, and they say, hey, you know, I watch you, and you're a sad soul. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the gospel. Well, I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. Would that be humiliating? Oh, it happens. It happens. Christ Church, friends, is a missionary church. Is it important to be doctrinally sound? Absolutely. You better believe it is. Is it important to hold a high view of God? He is sovereign. Adhere to the doctrines of grace? Absolutely. Is humility important? Absolutely. The gathering of the church is not to be some hyperventilated chamber of mere doctrinal citation. Amen? It better lead from here to here to here. Some Christians and even congregations are represented by a philosophy of us for no more shut the door. We're God's elect, and we're going to raise our little covenant children in this way so that we all sing and all say and all sound off with the same thing in some, with some kind of solemnized superiority. The result will be that you exchange redemptive privilege for religious practice. Amen? Israel had a lot of that in them. We're the covenant community of God. You Gentiles are second-rate covenant recipients. That was the attitude. We have the adoption. We understand the law. We understand the covenants, the promises, the traditions. We have it right. You're second-rate Gentile covenant children, I guess. Let's not forget how Paul opens chapter 9. He's looking at ethnic Israel. They've rejected Christ. They're going to hell. But his heart cries out for them. Remember? He understands divine election. But he doesn't retract into isolation and not proclaim truth or the gospel, right? He says to them, look, what about these Jews? Oh, verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who's God over all, blessed forever, forever and ever. Amen. But, all those promises in view, friends, he says, God's word has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is how it manifested itself. God's choice of us, beloved, is to bring glory and honor to his name, not my name, not your name, not the name of this congregation, not the name of this assembly, but the name of Jesus Christ alone. I was met by a pastor from town two years ago to my utter embarrassment. He confronted me. He said, John, 
why are you sending people from your church to home Bible groups at our church to raise trouble and to call into question our doctrine? Why are some of your people enrolling themselves in classes at our church causing trouble? I turned white as a ghost and said, what on earth are you talking about, brother? And that's exactly what a very small group, three or four people, had done. Now, but when he told me six months had passed, this is two years ago, two plus years ago, these people aren't here anymore, I was so ashamed, I was so hurt, I was so embarrassed. I said, brother, let me assure you, bro, the elders of this church had no idea. And it's probably a good thing I didn't. A very good thing that I didn't. Is that humility? Is that thanks, thanksgiving and humility of understanding the deep things of God, beloved? No. Look at this. 2 Peter 1. That's right there. Peter starts out here in this chapter, and he says this. Oh, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Whose work is that? All God's, right? Now, let's look at the result of God's work. Let's look at the instruction. For this very reason, he says, make every effort to supplement to your faith, which is a gift, with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities, don't miss this, if your qualities, these qualities are yours, are increasing, they keep you from being what? Ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a responsibility, is there not? This is our responsibility. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way there will be... You, there, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which is to say, works are not the basis of salvation. They're the fruit of salvation. Amen? Amen? The knowledge that God has chosen us, as unworthy as we are, ought not to make us proud rude, or complacent, or complacent. It ought to motivate us in thanksgiving and out of gratitude into obedience, holiness, and service. So what Peter says here is this. Don't sit by fat and happy and satisfied that God has chosen you and aren't you special. Because that's how Israel thought. That's what Paul's communicating. Or, boy, aren't we well-read and conversant in our theology and tradition. Instead, because of God's choice of us in Christ, we ought to be driven to the world, out into the world, to become light 
in the midst of the world for the glory of Christ. That's what he's saying. And then humbly share that knowledge with others. The fact of the matter is, if we hadn't been, if, the fact of the matter is, verse 29, we haven't been left as a Sodom or as a Gomorrah. We haven't been. So here it is. The point and purpose of chapter 9, beloved, is God's righteousness, God's goodness, His justice, His mercy. That is His saving purposes in the context of His absolute, self-determined, sovereign will. This is what we learn here. God does not answer to us. He's obligated to offer us no explanation whatsoever. He sovereignly saves and sovereignly hardens whom he will. He has saved you because of his mercy and grace alone. This we know. And we need to carry ourselves as humble recipients. Amen. Humble recipients. Here's a point of application. Texts like this are anything but pride-promoting but only humility and thanks producing. Amen? These texts humble us. Anyone who believes, you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You believe that he, that he is the only way for you to be saved. You confess with your mouth that truth. The Bible says you're saved. And we grow in the knowledge of this saving grace. And that's what we're here doing this morning. And he saves you to the end. Another point of application. There are many that he has determined to save. He determined to save them in eternity past. They're not born again yet. Right? In other words, there's the elect of God who aren't born again yet at this moment. They're out there. They're outside of these walls. There might be some in here. God may save today because he chose them then. So he's not only chosen them... But he also has chosen them at a time and purpose for which we might be the means to them understanding the gospel for his glory, a means to his end. Another application. As I said earlier, there are many Christians who reject God's doctrine of unconditional election. They go out every week and they have a true desire to see people come to Christ. However... They go out with a deep, sinking despair in their soul. You know why? Because they think that unless they say just the right thing in just the right way, if they reject Christ, they're going to go to hell and it's their fault. That's sinking despair. We might be able to assist brothers and sisters like that, who think like that with that kind of despair into a new elevation of understanding the glories of God and the doctrines of sovereign grace, but we need to earn their respect to do it. Amen? With humility, reasoning from the Scriptures, not entering into their home Bible studies to show how bright we are, doctrinally astute we are, signing up for their classes, that's ridiculous. Amen? We will never do that. Amen? Praise God. Understanding divine sovereign election correctly means that you can go out calmly, you can go out confidently, because the confidence isn't in you. It's in God. It's in Him. 
knowing that somewhere out there he has elected some in eternity past before the foundation of the world. And perhaps within his perfect timing, according to his will, he may be just what he, you may be just what he has chosen in the midst of your bumbling and stumbling words <laughs> to cause them to believe. You may be one who plants the seed or waters the seed. You may be there when he brings forth the harvest, but only he's bringing forth the harvest of belief. Amen. So you can go out with that kind of confidence. There's another point of application. So it's also important that we remember as I close that believing and trusting in God's sovereignty, in his election, in his choosing, does not mean that we can just sit around and do nothing. Well, God's going to save who he's going to save, so I don't need to say anything, right? That's a hyper view of sovereign grace. That's a hyper view. This truth should set fire underneath us. That okay, if some of them are elect out there, sometime they're going to hear the truth and they're going to believe and maybe I'm one of those who plays into the, the fact of the matter. That's it. It's not on you. It's on him. And we can rest in that. But may we not be lazy because of that. And another reason that Christ hasn't come back yet is because those who have been elected before the foundation of the earth because they're not born again yet, they're not born again yet, is why judgment hasn't fallen upon them. And I'll close with this text, 2 Peter 3. And it's usually one that many people take out of context. They'll say, well, God desires that none should perish. They think that means God desires that none should perish without exception. Now, question, is there anything that God desires to do that he cannot do? No. If God desires to do it, he wills to do it, he will do it. Okay? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All without exception? No. The all who is the you. Okay? Who is the you? Let's back up to chapter 3 and verse 1. This now is the second letter that I'm writing to you, who? Beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So, the all is the you who are the beloved of the Lord who've received this second letter. Right? Second letter. So, who do you write the first letter to? Let's go back to 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 1. To those who are elect. To those who are elect, according, verse 2, to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with His blood, God desires that none would perish who are His elect. Therefore, He will not unleash His final judgment until the last elect saint is brought into the household of faith. He could be out there right now, the last one, the last one. And then God's final judgment will be unleashed. Amen? Important to know these things? Absolutely. That's why we take time doing it. That's why I don't preach 30-minute sermons. It just takes time to do it. Amen? And I'm not good enough to bring all this truth in 30 minutes yet. One day, maybe. (laughs) Amen? I'm not that good yet. (laughs) 
So let us be humble with the truth we know. Amen? Humble. All that we have and all that we know is only because of the grace of God. We could have been, we should have been left like Sodom. We could have been, we should have been left like Gomorrah, but we weren't because of his grace and because of his mercy alone. And in the end of the day, it is all for his glory alone. Let's pray. Father, again, we are very thankful recipients of sovereign grace, of your sovereign electing purposes, which you determined to save us in eternity past. Lord, we know we don't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. We are simply recipients. Help us, Lord, to live lives in response to such goodness and such kindness and such grace. And with our friends who either aren't at the place of agreeing with us or just simply can't for some reason understand, help us, Lord, to be humble in in explaining these things and reasoning from the Scriptures so that your whole entire church, Lord, throughout the world will have a higher view of you and a less man-centered theology. Help us, Lord, in our weakness. Help us in our pride. Forgive us, strengthen us, enable us to carry the message of the gospel with power and authority from on high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.